The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, not just to the Hockey News Podcast, the Hockey News Podcast live in the studio. I can see Ryan Kennedy. I'm going to touch him right now. Please don't. I'm touching him. He's here. He's here. I just touched his elbow. If you're not watching, you're listening. I just touched Ryan Kennedy's elbow for the first time in at least a year and a half. Maybe longer. I'm not saying I touched his elbow the day before we went into lockdown, but maybe I did. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're brought to you by BetMGM. We're excited because we haven't done it this way for so long. As you can tell, I'm a little hyper. I'm always hyper, but I'm more hyper than normal. And it's fun, especially because, Ryan, going into today's podcast, you know, we've just been doing division previews for the last month, but a lot is going down. Very true. There's a lot of hot topics to get through today. And we're going to start with Robin Lehner, of course. He went on a rampage, for lack of a better word, on Twitter the other day, speaking out on many different topics, inferring that Alan Vigneault's coaching style is, is prehistoric, calling him a dinosaur, uh, talking about teams just giving players drugs like Ambien and benzo- benzodiazepines, benzos, as you guys were saying, the, the cool kids call them. And, of course, he was defending Jack Eichel and telling horror stories about how the Sabres treated his own ankle injury, Laner's own ankle injury. So let's start by diving into that, Ryan. Where do you stand on what Laner's done? Do you think he was right to do what he's done? Did he choose the right forum? Or just what are your thoughts in general? Well, you know, I kind of see him as almost a whistleblower in this scenario. And I, I do like what he's doing because it's unfiltered and he's kind of pulling the veil back on a lot of important issues and you know, sometimes, particularly in professional sports, things are so high stakes. There's so much money involved. Uh, you know, there's so much glory involved that uh, players, you know, whether it's hockey players or in other sports, they don't always want to speak up and and sort of speak their truth. And and Robin Lehner has proven time and again that th- that's not him. He's going to say what's on his mind, and he's going to stick up passionately for what he believes in. So I appreciate his candor, and I appreciate that he's kind of cutting through the bureaucracy and saying, look, I'm putting this out there. You guys have to deal with this now because it's happening. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I do think he is trying to break down a wall. And I think if you look at the other major pro sports, by far the NHL is the biggest offender in terms of being closed, sort of a closed society. And there's such a conformist culture in hockey that if you do something to stand out, it's like, the best way to, to summarize how conformist hockey culture is, is that non-conformist things are used as punishments. Oh, the rookie's got to skate a lap by himself. Anything that stands out is considered a punishment. That's how badly players don't want to stand out. It's sort of baked into the culture. It's, I think, a big problem with hockey culture. So what Lander's doing, I think he, he's really trying to smash through that wall. What I'm wondering is, did he did he choose the right form? And I don't mean I disagree with anything he's saying. I, I, I support what he's saying. Obviously, we have to find out you know how true everything is, but I support the idea of what he's saying. What I'm wondering is, if, if you do it just over Twitter, on one hand, I get the idea of doing it that way because it needed to be a surprise attack. 
because maybe if he wanted to do it in an organized way, someone would have stopped him. Right. But on the other hand, just firing off a bunch of tweets, it can make him come across as more of a loose cannon. And I don't know whether it, it devalidates his argument a little bit. And if he had done sort of a sit down, you know, taped interview where he kind of goes through everything in a more formal way, maybe that would have more impact. Hard to say. I can kind of see both sides. Um, and I don't know if we're going to learn too much more about what's going on. I think the NHL stepping in now, they are going to try and squash it and settle it with him as best they can. But I do think he's at least started a conversation. And I, I do think that he is as fearless as any player in the league talking about those issues. It's just a matter of are people ready for it in the league. I yeah. hope it's the start of a, of a paradigm shift but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that you know some of his peers uh, also spoke up. Tom Sestito, uh, you know the the enforcer, you know he said, yeah, like when it comes to these uh, prescribed medicines uh, like Toradol and Ambien, uh, you know he had access to a, a lot of them, and and I remember, you know, years ago when when Derek Bugard passed away. You know, uh, there was a list uh, that came out. I, I think it was through his lawyers. I don't remember. It was a very long time ago. But it was the amount of prescription drugs he was given by the various NHL teams he played for. And it was incredible just the volume of it. And granted, he was a big guy. But still, uh, I remember checking with some other medical professionals. And they were like, that's a lot of medicine right there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sean Avery has talked about it before as well in his book, you know, Toradol. Uh, famously, he said, it makes you feel like Iron Man, where you're in this suit and your head is normal, but you can't, nothing can touch your body, or at least that's how you feel. You feel indestructible. And, you know, obviously that's uh, beneficial when you're on the ice, but once the Toradol wears off, then the pain comes back. So it's, it's a huge issue. And I think, you know, the way Laner did it, we're already seeing some new voices such as Sestito come out and say, yeah, I, I have a take on this too. And for me, it's interesting to hear what these other players and, and former players have to say. For sure. And I think it's absolutely vital for that to happen because if you don't have a, a large contingent of players, especially active players coming out in support of Laner, it's going to make it look like he's sort of flapping in the breeze by himself and it's going to devalidate his argument, I think. Um, so I, I, I hope for his sake that he does get that support because the more people come forward, the more valid it's going to be and the more people I think are going to take it seriously. Um, sticking with, again, we're, the, the topics are heavy for today's podcast. We have Josh Archibald, Edmonton Oilers right winger, out with myocarditis, and it was revealed to be a result of contracting COVID-19, and it's an inflammation of the heart muscle, uh, and it increases the uh, risk of a heart attack for an athlete. It can cause death if you exert yourself when the the heart muscle is inflamed. So we know right now that Archibald is out indefinitely. He has a pretty strong chance to miss miss the season. We saw what happened to Alex Stalock last year. It could even impact or threaten Josh Archibald's career, especially considering it's not like he's a superstar. You know, he's a checker. So if he's sort of playing on the borderline of, you know, being in, in the bottom six on an NHL team, if he misses a year, there's no guarantee he's going to get back to being good enough to be on an NHL team. We don't know for sure. The other thing, of course, what makes this quite the controversial story is that, of course, Josh Archibald is a proud anti-vaxxer. Not just an anti-vaxxer, a proud and active anti-vaxxer. We've seen him tweet about things like COVID-19 being a planned government attack. So my question for you is, how do you feel hearing this news? Because 
there are different schools of thought. Some people just want to feel sympathy for Archibald. It's a very sad story, what's happened to him and, and his career is threatened. Other people might think, well, this looks good on him. He was taking a foolish stance on a very real disease and he's being punished for it. Uh, I know how I feel. I want to hear how you feel first. Where do you land on this? My take is that I don't want anybody to have this disease uh, or this uh, this virus. And so, it, you know, it, it gives me no joy to hear it. even somebody that, uh, you know, doesn't believe the science. I, I, I feel bad for Josh Archibald. I feel bad for anybody who has either contracted it or uh, has had loved ones pass away. And, you know, we've seen a, a huge death toll from COVID-19. Um, what I hope is that everybody gets vaccinated and, you know, society can kind of move on and uh, and open up to, you know, a, a normal place again. And, and that's not going to happen until we get, you know, pretty much everybody who can get vaccinated, vaccinated. Um, you know, for Archibald in particular, yeah, his career's maybe over. Uh, you know, this was the final year of his contract, if I'm not mistaken. And... You know, like you said, myocarditis, like you don't want to mess around with that. You don't want to mess around with anything to do with your heart. And as an energy guy, it's not like he can float through a shift. I mean, if he's not crashing and banging and uh, and giving 100%, then he's of no use to anybody. So, you know, for his sake, I, I hope that, um, you know, he can, he can push through this uh and you know come back someday because you know i don't want anybody to lose lose their livelihoods and i certainly don't want them to to lose their health and hopefully he gets vaccinated now and and gets on the road to recovery and whether or not we ever see him in the nhl is probably going to come down to his his talent level um but in the meantime i I just hope he recovers and gets vaccinated Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be quite as nice as you are about it. I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But here's the thing. Uh, in this case, I sort of apply the utilitarian uh, philosophy, which is believing in the greater good. Uh, Josh Archibald has 4,000-plus Twitter followers. He also has the clout of an NHL player. He's tweeting out information about COVID being a hoax. That's harmful. That's harmful for the type of people that follow him. And the type of people that are believing this kind of stuff are also going to take what a hockey player says. They're more likely, I think, to be taking what a hockey player says as gospel if they're foolish enough to believe this type of theory in the first place. So he's causing damage with this type of misinformation. I'm not saying, I'm not going to say I'm happy that this happened to him, but I do think it serves a cause that's probably greater than if it didn't happen to him because there's a big lesson learned here. Someone who did not take this disease seriously, is now being severely punished for it. And maybe as a result of that, some of the people that were buying what he was selling, that were reading what he was tweeting, are going to change the way they think. So this may actually be saving lives. It might be hurting his career, but it genuinely could be saving lives because it could cause a change of heart in some of these people. That's why I'm hoping. So it sounds calloused, but I do think there's something positive to take away from this. And that is... This is not a friggin' hoax. I say this as someone who's had close family members affected by the virus, and I've seen firsthand how serious it is. It's no joke. It's no friggin' hoax. So all due respect to Mr. Archibald, I think this is probably a good thing. Uh, next up, the Prince Albert Raiders in WHL. They had plans for a third jersey that depicted a racially offensive logo. I think it's being referred to as a, an Arabian Raider. Um, it was very cartoonish. And they were going to unveil it this year. They obviously got a very negative response to it. They quickly backtracked. They apologized. They pulled the jersey. 
But I'm sort of looking at it from more of a big picture perspective. We're seeing it, you know, with all the different in Major League Baseball and football, there's so many teams that have been changing their names, but we're still seeing these problems happen with not every, you know, you, for, every, for every Washington football team that you get or Edmonton Elks that makes the change, you're still getting one of these. And it feels like it's a couple steps forward and then you take a step back. So why do you think this keeps happening? And how far away are we from finally reaching a point where people understand that racially offensive logos are not okay? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about education, right? And... Uh, it's very interesting because Prince Albert actually played in the first nationally televised game of the year against the Regina Pats on CBC uh, the day before, or I guess it was maybe the same day. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, the WHL didn't appreciate how quickly the conversation shifted to this third jersey. It was a design they wore in the 1980s uh, when obviously these issues weren't taken as seriously. Um I, you know, it, it's a matter of education. Obviously, there was uh, layers of, um, you know, sort of introspection here that were not available and, and should have been. I, it's, it's surprising that at no point someone was like, that's not going to fly uh, in modern times. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, it was a, a bit of a black eye for the franchise. I'm sure they'll, you know, I hope they learn from this. And I think with the sports world, there's, there's a disconnect and there has been a disconnect about, you know, what mascots and team names mean to identifiable groups. And, you know, when there's a, the problem arises when there's a lack of agency, you know, if, if it's not a cultural group that you actually represent, things get very tricky very quickly. And, you know, I, I know people say like, oh, what about the Notre Dame fighting Irish? Well, it's like there was a lot of Irish people at Notre Dame University when the name was coined. And, you know, one of my favorite teams is Wake Forest, the Demon Deacons. It was a Baptist university. And, uh, you know, somebody about 100 years ago or whatever it was said, wow, you know, they fight like demons, so demon deacons, because it was a Baptist school. Um, obviously, you know, with the Prince Albert Raiders, this is you know not a team that has Middle Eastern roots. Uh, and again, it's it's an educational thing. I mean, not a lot of people um, in the sports world in the past have reflected on these things. And luckily, we're seeing change come quickly. Uh, in this case, unfortunately, it was uh, another learning experience. And, and, and hopefully we don't deal with these things uh, very often anymore. Hopefully this is sort of one of the last times we have to say, like, come on, this is, <laughs> this is not going to fly. Yeah, and, and what really shakes me about this one is this happened to Prince Albert seven years ago in 2014. They had the mascot that was the Arabian Raider, and they offended people with that, and they backtracked. So whose idea was it seven years later to say, you know what, you know what? Uh, it worked. It didn't work as a mascot, but you know, we'll put it on a logo. People this time, they're not going to be offended. It's yeah. the same thing. I don't understand. And to me, I wonder if there is a problem in terms of leadership uh, in WHL. So I did a lot of work earlier this year on hockey culture and things that need to change. I was doing it more in regards to the LGBTQ plus community. And we know, of course, that the OHL has hired Rico Phillips to be the director of cultural diversity and inclusion. And, and when I interviewed him for the story earlier this year, I asked him if there would be an equivalent of him hired in the WHL and the Q. And he said he believes there would be soon. I was looking into it today, 
I could be wrong, so if I'm, if I'm wrong, please tweet me, correct me. But from what I understand, those positions have not been filled in WHL and the QMJHL. So I think if you did have someone who had their finger on the pulse of what is considered inclusive and not inclusive, that wouldn't have happened with Prince Albert. So maybe it just highlights the need for someone to come into a leadership role, or whether it's Rico Phillips taking over for all of the CHL. Maybe that's too big of a job. I'm not sure. It probably would help to have someone in each league. Um, I think that would be very important, and maybe that would be a way to solve the problem, especially because anyone I've talked to, whether it's professors or scholars or people that are sort of leaders uh, fighting the fight for inclusion in hockey, anyone I've talked to, they all seem to agree wholeheartedly that junior hockey is the biggest offender in terms of where all the problems and the conformity and the pressure to conform, the stereotyping, the racism, whatever it is, obviously the sexual assault, whatever it is, hazing, it all seems to come from major juniors, the primary offender, and from what I've been told, and I've, I've even spoke to you know professors that specialize in conformity, um, it's because you have all these kids traveling together, living their lives so similarly, because they're teenagers, they're sharing hotels, that everything they do is sort of in lockstep, and they learn all the same ideologies, then they pass that down to the next wave of kids that are coming up, and it just kind of recycles itself. So to me, major junior is, is the area that needs to be targeted the most for sort of cleaning up the inclusivity problems. That's why Rico Phillips was brought in, and I do think maybe we need to see more help in the WHL as well. Um, so let's talk some just actual hockey now. Obviously, this is a pretty heavy start to the podcast, but these are important topics. It's, it's good to talk about them. Um, but let's talk numbers now. Vancouver Canucks, we've been waiting all offseason for these contracts to come through. Ottawa's still waiting on Brady Kachuk, but uh, we do have Elias Pettersson signing three years at $7.35 million a year. We have Quinn Hughes, six years, $7.85 million a year. So two totally different philosophies on the contract, one bridge deal and one long-term deal. What do you think? Do you like the deals for team and player? You know, it's interesting. I kind of go back and forth on it because when I first thought about this question, I thought that, you know, it's like, ooh, the Elias Pettersson one, it's only three years um, and then you got to deal with it again, and he'll probably need a raise, so maybe that wasn't good. But when I think about it more, I actually like the PD deal uh, for Vancouver. I'm, I'm fine with the Quinn Hughes deal either way. I think it's just a straight across the board. It's a good deal for, for both sides. But with Pedersen, you know, we're in a flat cap era, going to be in a flat cap era for a couple of years. What I see here is Vancouver and GM Jim Benning buying themselves a little time because once this contract is up, maybe the cap has grown a bit. You know, we got Seattle coming in as the 32nd franchise this season, Um, you know, new TV deals. And obviously, you know, everybody's playing catch up because of the pandemic. But, you know, these sort of instruments are in place to increase revenue. It's not going to happen right away, but, you know, they're on a good path. So, Maybe what Vancouver has done here, uh, because Pedersen will still be an RFA when this new deal expires. So that's uh, some important hand for the Canucks. Now they go into that contract. Maybe the cap has started to go up again. They have a little more breathing room and they can sign Pedersen. You know, maybe it is a long term deal. I mean, he's still going to be uh, one of their best players when this contract expires, if not the best player on the team. So maybe you go with a seven or eight year deal at that point where you're buying a lot of free agent uh, UFA years and he comes in at nine and a half, ten million dollars per. So um, that to me, the Elias Pettersson one, that's the very interesting contract in my mind. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I don't always say this about contracts signed by Mr. Jim Benning. 
But I really like both contracts for different reasons. Um, from Pedersen's perspective, it's clear to me it's the Nikita Kucherov contract. That to me was one of the most influential contracts signed in the NHL in the last five years, ten years, because it created a new idea of the pseudo bridge where you do part of your prime at an, you know, a, a raise, but not a raise really reflecting your true value. And then you, boom, hit it big when you're still in your prime on the next deal because you only took that three-year bridge. So to me now, Pedersen has the possibility of being an $11 million player on his next deal. Like you said, the flat cap will be going up probably by then. And if Pedersen is an $11 million player in three years, that's good news for the Canucks. That means he's a superstar. So yeah. you want him to become an $11 million player. If he's not, then you can just pay him what he's already being paid now. And with Hughes, I think it was capitalization by the Canucks on a down year. Um, if you look at, you know, everyone wants to compare Quinn Hughes to Kale McCarr, and here I am doing it as well. Uh, McCarr obviously got a lot more on his deal, but Hughes is coming off a year where he really regressed defensively. And now you're getting him in, I think, a, a, an AAV that will be a bargain in a few years, especially if Hughes can clean up the defensive side in his game, which I think there's a pretty good chance he will. He's going to get older and more mature. So I kind of like both contracts, which to me is not something we always say when it comes to the Canucks. This is the same team that just spent a lot of money to bring in Oliver ekman Larson and you know sign that Tyler Myers deal. The list goes on and on. So I think it's good news for the Canucks. So we're getting close to the end of the preseason. Um, like our, our buddy Ken Campbell out there, I personally someone who I, I hate the preseason, and I'm sorry to admit it, I'm absolutely a preseason snob. I have a hard time watching the preseason, which makes me a bad employee. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's just the truth. That said, I do think it's important to try and find some meaning in the preseason. And totally. there are some storylines that emerge that don't end up meaning anything. But I'm challenging you, Mr. Kennedy. Find a storyline that you think is legitimately relevant and has real implications for the 2021-22 NHL season? Well, I got a good one, and it's in Columbus. Uh, Cole Sillinger, number one center. Uh, he's been playing with Patrick Laine and Jakub Voracek for a lot of camp and, and been very impressive. And obviously this is uh, a player that was just drafted by the Blue Jackets this summer, still a teenager, friend of the podcast. We had him on the Prospect podcast uh, last season. And I, this is very intriguing to me because, you know, the number one weakness in Columbus right now is down the middle. And when, when we looked at their lineup um, in the summer and when we did our previews, it was like, who's going to play center? They don't have any natural centers other than like Sean Corrali. You know, they're trying to make Jack Roslovic a center. Maybe that'll work. You know, Alexander Tessier, they're trying to make him as a scoring line center. Maybe that'll work, but who knows? With Cole Sillinger, you know, as young as he is, he has that profile. He's a strong kid. He's got great offensive instincts. He had a fantastic year in the USHL last season because, um, you know, the WHL was delayed. So he went down to Sioux Falls, uh, played very well for the Stampede, and then obviously Columbus took him in the first round. But if that's a fit, then I'm not saying Columbus is a playoff team, but at least you can look at your depth chart and say, okay, well, we've got a young man who, if he continues on this trajectory, that really helps our depth chart. That really kind of clears some, some things up with our forward core. And at the least, it's a great sign for the future that if, if Sillinger doesn't make the roster this year, it'd be hard to see him not making it next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the enthusiasm there for sure. 
Um, I'm looking at another potential impact rookie, not from the same draft class, of course, as, as Cole Sillinger, uh, but still someone who was picked high in the first round, and that's Lucas Raymond in Detroit. I'm very excited about Lucas Raymond. Uh, we know that the Red Wings are notorious, and not just in the Steve Eisenman era, going all the way back to Ken Holland, Jimmy DeVolano. They just they bring their kids along very, very slowly, and it's been a molasses-paced rebuild in Detroit. So... There's obviously going into this offseason, this preseason, there was no guarantee that Lucas Raymond was going to come to North America and just take the preseason by storm, make the team out of camp. Same goes for Mort Sider. The list goes on with Red Wings prospects. They're very careful. That said, the Jakob Vrana injury is significant, the shoulder injury. That opens up a key spot in the top six. And we also see Lucas Raymond ripping it up in the preseason. Really impressive stuff. And we know one of his greatest traits in his draft year was his intelligence. Just extremely high hockey IQ, can do everything well, responsible at both ends of the ice, and he just sounds, he's just a Red Wing. Like even just being a Swede, it just, it's, it's Henrik <laughs> Zetterberg all over again, right? He just, he fits that profile of the sort of tradition that has come through every generation of good Detroit teams as a couple players like that, that just do everything well. And the fact that Eisenman is a GM, I don't think it's coincidence that he targeted a player like Lucas Raymond. And if, they're willing to take the kid gloves off. I think Lucas Raymond should make this team. I think he will and should get an opportunity immediately on the first line playing with Dylan Larkin. And if if he sticks, he's an immediate Calder Trophy candidate. So that's an exciting story because it's it's time for Detroit to have a kid on that team to get really excited about. Obviously, Mort Sider as well. I think Sider is going to be an absolute beast in the NHL, someone that 10 years from now is going to be playing 29 minutes a night in playoff games. So I'm excited about both, but I'll say Lucas Raymond is my story to watch. Let's do some listener questions. We have a few good ones today. First one is from Ranton and Raven, one of our stellar question askers. Yeah, my, he's my guy or gal. I'm not sure or whoever whoever they are. Um, but we haven't had a Ranton and Raven question for a while, so I think we're due. Ranton and Raven wants to know, who could you see as a dark horse for the Rocket Bouchard Trophy? It's always relative in terms of what a dark horse is. It's like, is Patrick Mladenov a dark horse? Or is that too obvious? Uh, I put down Mika Zibanejad because I think last season he started late. We know the year before he was absolutely on fire. He was scoring in the second half at like a 70-goal pace or something ridiculous like that. Last year he had COVID. He started out the season really slow. Then he caught fire and went gangbusters again. He had multiple six-point games last season. So if he can be healthy and put it together for an entire season or not get traded for in part of a Jack Eichel deal, then I think he's someone to watch out for. If that's too obvious of a pick, I'm going to do more of a hot take. I'm just going to keep piling on to my own Florida Panthers momentum I'm building because they are my Stanley Cup pick. Okay, I'm going to say Sam Reinhardt. If we're talking Whoa. real dark horse, and I'm not saying that I think Sam Reinhardt is going to win the Rocket Richard. The question calls for a dark horse. Uh. Sam Reinhardt scored 25 goals somehow playing for Buffalo last year. In the second half, I think he had 18, 19 goals in the second half. He's now likely to be playing the right wing on the first line with Carter Verhaeg and Alexander Barkov. And I just think the stars might be aligning for a great season from Reinhardt, the best season of his career. I think it's more likely maybe he scores 30 goals. I know, but right. the question called for a dark horse, so wow. that's a dark horse for you. When you said Florida, I thought you were going to say Barkoff, and I was like, yeah, I kind of considered, you know, if he has just like a monster, monster year. Um, for me, and I, again, I don't know if this is like a super dark horse, but Kirill Kaprizov, and I'm saying Kaprizov now because that's what the uh, the press release said. I'm, I'm trying to say it as accurately as possible. Um, you know, 27 goals as a rookie with the Minnesota Wild in, I think it was 55 games. Um, you know, I just finished talking to Matt Dumba 
um, about Kaprizov for an upcoming magazine story. And it was very interesting because Dumba, obviously an accomplished defenseman, uh, he was saying that day, for whatever reason, he always got matched up in one-on-one drills with Kaprizov, and it was not fun. But it was interesting because he talked about all the mechanics in Kaprizov's sort of attacking style, how low he gets, how he adjusts his hips in very unique ways, um, just when he's kind of attacking offensively and how difficult it is to knock him off the puck. He actually compared him to Nathan McKinnon, uh, the way he had that elite talent to be powerful and explosive. And again, Kaprizov, he's coming off his first NHL season what does he have in store for year two? Minnesota's going to be a good team. Uh, the cast is growing with him when you think about guys like Fiala and Greenway um, and then Joel Erickson-Eck. Um, I think maybe they might be trying Kaprizov and Erickson-Eck together as a tandem. I know he played a lot with Victor Rask last year, but I'm, I'm, I'm in the Kaprizov tank now. I, 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 want to see, I want to see how high this kid can fly. Could he net 40 or even 45 this year? Uh, I, I certainly think it's possible. I like it. I still remember what a scout told me about Kaprizov when we were, uh, it was a couple years back, we were doing our Future Watch edition. I think he was our number one or number two prospect. And, and the scout said that he had the body of Tarasenko, so like really underrated in how muscular and powerful mm. he is. Uh, he had the hands and sort of dazzle of Artemi Panarin, and he had the intelligence of Brad Marchand. He said he said that the scout said that Kaprizov always faces the play. Whatever whatever's happening on the ice, his his body's always reacting and in position to what's happening. So he's always ready to receive a pass, do anything, just be involved in the play, which is just sort of a testament to his intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, next question is from SportPassion.de: Who will be the biggest positively surprising team? In the East and the West. So I've got a couple. In the West, uh, I've been driving the LA Kings bus all summer long. I still believe in it. And I know I sound like a broken record, but this is the question. So the Pacific Division, we've established in our previews that it's, the I, I think, the weakest. It's the most wide open. The Kings have made a lot of improvements on defense, I think, with Edler, but also defense at forward with Philip Deneau. And I think Cal Peterson is going to continue to emerge as the number one goaltender. They've signed him to that extension. You have Quentin Byfield coming in. He should get insulated matchups. You have lots of exciting other young kids that could get the call at any given time, whether it's Arthur Kaliev or Alex Turcott. The list goes on. So to me, the Kings. In the East, it's the Ottawa Senators, I think. Um, it's hard. The East is so competitive. And I was thinking of the New Jersey Devils, but I think the... The Metro is a little more crowded. I think the Senators have a chance to compete with Montreal for the number five spot. And five puts you in possibly in playoff position, depending on what happens in the Metro. We know the Senators are a team on the rise. They're young forwards. They're exciting. They probably need a bit more veteran help, for sure. They probably have to trade for another center. But I still like what they're building with, you know, we're going to see Shane Pinto playing on the team all season long. That top, that first line of Brady Kachuk, Josh North, and Norris and Drake Batherson, of course, Tim Stutzla is almost getting overlooked now, which is kind of funny because he might still be the best of the lot. So I'm very excited about the Senators this year, even though they're going to have a, a tough division to play in. Mm. Yeah, for me, uh, I'm still riding Dallas out west. Uh, I know that uh, not everybody in the office agrees with me, but I still see a team that has just so much structure. They're well coached. They buy into what Rick Bonus. 
uh, is selling them. You got Miro Heskinen, you got John Klingberg, Esselindel on defense. Now you got a motivated Ryan Suter back there. Up front, you know, Tyler Sagan's coming back. You've got uh, Dennis Gurianov, and you got Rupe Hintz. I, I like their depth. You know, goaltending is going to be very interesting to watch. Um, you know, it was just reported today Ben Bishop's not going to play any exhibition games, so his health obviously still a huge X factor, but. They do have Anton Kudobin. They do have Braden Holtby now. And, of course, you know, Jake Ottinger, who is most likely going to be kind of an NHL, AHL tweener, uh, just because you want him. I mean, he's your goalie of the future. You want him to get all the work he can. But I just I, I like Dallas. I think they're kind of slept on. And they're, they're one of those teams where I don't expect them to necessarily be, like, at the top of the division. But if they get in, you don't want to play them. Uh, as for the East, the East is very tricky, and I was I was thinking Ottawa as well. I'm a little alarmed with the Colin White injury. I know he's not a huge driver, but he is a veteran guy, and he gives him sort of a different look. Um, I'm going to say the New York Islanders. I know we had them high when we did our preview, but I feel like they're not getting a lot of respect. I, I mean, they never get a ton of respect outside of their own market uh, just because of the style of play. But again, I mean, this is a team that knows who they are. And I think it's fun bringing Zdeno Chara back into the fold, uh, particularly because they don't need him to be the guy. Um, I mean, he's not even really going to be their most important, like, big guy with reach. They got Scott Mayfield as well. But you know, you got Ryan Pulak and Adam Pellick leading that defense core. You have so many weapons up front. And then again, a very motivated Zach Parise. Um, so for me, the Islanders are a team where they knew they know who they are. They've had some runs. I'm sure they want an even longer run this year. And I think they'll be motivated to do so. All right. Good picks. Good picks. Next question. Uh, I hope this is not true and, and hopefully we're not enabling, but um, I'm going to take it as a joke. Uh, the question comes from... Saint Me Austin, and the question says, I am a degenerate gambler. Where am I putting my money on future bets before the season starts? Okay, so again, hopefully we're not enabling here, but we'll play along. Uh, so I've got two bets, okay? If you want to bet within the realistic cup contenders, but one that's not priced as high as some of the obvious teams, it's the Florida Panthers, baby. I'm driving that bus again because the Panthers in most sports books, you're going to see them outside the top five just because people don't take the Florida Panthers seriously. They missed the playoffs for a decade. They're considered a small hockey market, whatever it is. They play in the same division as Tampa Bay Lightning, now the Boston Bruins as well, the Leafs, whatever the reason is. I just think they have all the components. They're so deep. You have Reinhardt changing the, the dynamic of the top line. You have a great shutdown pair in terms of your top two, the biggest minute-munching defensemen in Mackenzie Weaker and Aaron Ekblad. You've got between Bobrovsky and Spencer Knight, someone's going to give you a good goaltending. You have Joel Quenville. You have kids on the rise, guys like Owen Tippett, who I think is going to play a much bigger role this season. The list of reasons to like Florida is so high. The more of a sleeper pick, and this is just, a re again, if you're just talking about a real Hail Mary that's going to pay out big, uh, among teams that are ranked in most sports books in the bottom half of the league for cup odds, I'd say the Vancouver Canucks. Because even though they have a lot of defensive shortcomings, if you look at just the overall structure of the team, they have the pieces there to be something special. There's a lot of talent on that team, especially the top nine now, which has added Connor Garland, added Jason Dickinson, you're adding Vasily Podkolzin. Those three are added to what was already a pretty intriguing top six that already had Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser and Niels Hoglander and Bo Horvat. So that's a really deep forward group. 
if Quinn Hughes can take a step forward, I think that would be very interesting. And of course, Thatcher Demko, we know, is is capable of becoming a Vezina Trophy caliber number one goaltender. So I, I put them in the category, kind of like the New York Rangers, of the if the stars align, they could go all the way. They could miss the playoffs or they could go all the way. So mm-hmm. that makes them a fun Hail Mary futures bet, in my opinion. Nice. So I took a slightly different tack on this question um, just to have fun with it. Because if you're a degenerate gambler, <laughs> then the Toronto Maple Leafs are your team because you, you're you going to be on a roller coaster. Like, Maple Leafs to win the Cup, they certainly have you know the elements to do it. I think they upgraded in net with Peter Mrazek over Freddie Anderson just in terms of playoff composure and then of course Jack Campbell returns I thought he was pretty good at the playoffs um, and you know again if Tavares doesn't go down in game one they beat the Habs if Muzzin doesn't go down later in the series they beat the Habs uh, and then they probably beat Winnipeg as well um, but you know I just think of this team where we still don't know if they can win a playoff round and that's the excitement if you're a gambler I'm picturing like Picturing like Harvey Keitel in the original Bad Lieutenant. Uh, just every game he's going the wrong way. So I think if you really want to, you know, kind of have that, you know, heart pumping excitement of betting on a team in a seven game series, it's got to be the Toronto Maple Leafs because that's going to get your gambling juices flowing. All right. I get, I get the logic. Sound logic. We are going to finish off the podcast with our first live Rapid Fire game. Here's here's my question. Did we do, did Rapid Fire start post-COVID? Is this our first in-person version of the Rapid Fire game? It might be. It might be. I remember the first one was Ken and I when you were on vacation. Hmm. So hmm. that was the inmates running the asylum. Yeah. And I thought it would be funny. All right, so we're going to kick it off with me in true Squid Game spirit. I'm going to stab Ryan in the back and steal what was going to be a question of his last week that he was saving, and I'm going to turn around and and use it on him. So we start with this. Which Squid Game event would be your weakest? Yes, and we actually did discuss this. I believe we have the same one, but with the honeycomb, which apparently has become a huge sensation uh, in Korea again. People that make those uh, can't keep them on the shelves uh, because of the show. But I am not a precise person. Uh, so especially if I didn't have like any help from any other people, and I'm assuming we're just on our own devices here, there's no way I'm not cracking that thing. Yeah, I- I'm the same. I, uh, I do not have surgeon's hands. Uh, like I'm known for it while playing Scrabble. If I just put one tile down, the whole board goes like, <laughs> and it shakes. And someone's like, "Really?" I'm like, "Sorry, it just I just put it down." So yeah, I, like on the way to the office, like I burned my hand. I, my coffee splashed all over me. So I ain't I ain't, I ain't cutting no shape out of a honeycomb no. successfully without a cracking. I, I will be murdered. Yeah. And yes, that is the premise of this show. It is the most popular show in the history of Netflix. So check it out. Um, which current coach? Would you most like to play for in the NHL? Ooh, that's a good one. Current coach. I'm trying to think of, you know, just the motivators. And you know what? I'll go back to an earlier topic. I'm going to say Rick Bonus right now in Dallas. Just the way that he has unified that team and... The communication he has with them, I, I feel like that's somebody that uh, I could I could definitely play for. I, I like Rick Bonus's style. 
All right, I like that. Uh, I'm going to match up with you in the 2020 Stanley Cup Final for this question then. I'm going to go John Cooper. Um, He sort of reflects the style of leadership that I would have if I was an NHL coach. Players coach, but also likes to talk a lot and likes the spotlight, Mm -hmm. which also I think would be my style. And I think I would identify with that in my own coach. And I would like to play for a positive motivator instead of a coach that uses negative reinforcement like more of a Daryl Sutter type. So John Cooper, that would be my guy. Uh, this is one, again, we've done so many rapid fires that I'm, I'm starting to get the feeling of, have we done this one before? So, again, listeners, if you find one that we've done before, just let me know. Um, what is your most personally embarrassing sports moment in a competitive sport? Something that's happened oh, to you. This is an easy one, and this is uh, we have not done this before. When I was in, I think it was grade three, I was in a track meet. I uh, grew up in Scarborough, which is just outside of, well, it's part of Toronto, but... Um, east side of Toronto. I was in a track meet. I was wearing Velcro shoes, and one of my shoes fell off mid-race. So I ran back to get it, and obviously I lost the race, and I was just <laughs> standing there by myself while everybody else had uh, crossed the finish line. Went back for the shoe, eh? I think... It was, it was instinct. I don't know why. Should have kicked off the other shoe and just barefooted the rest of the race. Should have. You know? Yeah. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Hindsight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a pretty, a pretty bad one. Uh, I was in Little League Baseball in a playoff game. We were trailing by a run. They were runners on second and third. I was on third base. The batter for our team walked. And that walk loaded the bases. I thought the bases were already loaded. I started walking home. Oh. And I got tagged out to be eliminated from the season. That was the final out in a 1-1 game. We had the bases loaded, two out. I thought I got walked in. I turned to my bench and said, it's tied. And then I felt something pressing against my my tummy. And I was like, what's that? And it was a baseball held by the other team's catcher. I immediately cried on the spot. And How old were you? I was 10. And then the... Like, our coach was... Like, all the kids were just... No one looked me in the eye. Our coach was like, now... We we lose as a team. We lose as a team here. We lose as a a team. And, uh, and my dad said he like hid. He, he like was in the stands and he uh, he looked down at the ground. That was a tough one, especially because it was the final out of the season. That's rough. Who boy. Okay. On a scale of one to ten, how confident are you that Alex Ovechkin breaks Gretzky's goals record? I'm gonna put it at an eight. I'm I'm pretty confident. Uh, because it's, it's in sight, and I feel like Washington's going to get to the point, especially with Nick Backstrom hurt, where playoffs might not necessarily be in the cards, but getting Alex Ovechkin is always in the cards. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I'm going to say seven. Um, I think he has the motivation to do it. He has the talent to do it. He's going to keep scoring at a pretty high rate, even if he's, quote-unquote, only a 30-goal guy going forward, whatever happens. Uh, but I, I, I'm not going to go higher than seven, because I think he we don't know what... The physical decline awaits as he gets to his late 30s. He he could fall off a cliff. His production could suddenly, his body could just give up on him. You never know what's going to happen when you get past 35 and you're a pro athlete. So he could break it easily or he could be out of hockey in three years instead mm. of five and have to retire early. You just, you just don't know. Mm. Um, what would be your best career path based on your skills if you were not a hockey reporter? Hmm. You know what? I would probably go into like sales of some sort, like sales or marketing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's kind of in my blood. Okay, that's good. I would be a detective, a homicide detective. Uh, I would have to, I'd really have to grind to get past like the training just in being a beat cop because, Mm. you know, like I'd probably get hurt and I might not be very good at that part, like crowd control, all that kind of stuff. But I think 
the detective part, I'd be good because I have good attention to detail. And when it comes to doing stories, I'm really good at finding people that are hard to find. Mm. Like, I remember once finding Ally Frady, and he was like, how'd you find me? (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, I think that's a skill I have. I'm really good at finding just obscure people that have gone, not gone missing, but like, you know, someone in hockey that no one knows where this person went. Mm. So I always think, oh, maybe I'd be a good detective. That's pretty cool. But what the heck, Ryan? I know, it's boring. (laughs) It's like, well, because it's like, you know, like I play music, but I don't want to make a living off my music because of the style of it. So I know it's boring. And we know we know what the style it is. We yes, know what we it do. is, right? It's this. Yeah. You start hardcore, and then you'd be like all the hardcore drummers in their fifties are just doing jazz at some like nightclub, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like Whiplash if people cared. Oh, great movie! It is great. a great movie, but hilariously, I, I joke. It's like. It's about the incredibly low stakes world of jazz drumming because it's like all this build up for a show that they play once in front of some old people. And it's like, that's that. That's right. It's like, I almost killed myself for a performance that nobody really cares yeah, about. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, last one. Okay. This depends on whether you're invested in this. So, in honor of the Many Saints of Newark coming out, mm. I don't know if you watch the Sopranos series. I'm watching I'm it now. For, okay. How, how far into you are you? I'm into season three. This, episode, this question's about season three. Ooh, so, I'm only two episodes in. Oh, uh, you're 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 okay. about five episodes away. Uh, okay. So I'm gonna. I see. Here's this is a tough one. Do I do I spare Mr. Kennedy? Do I do do I answer this question myself for the audience, or do mm. I not answer it to spare you the spoiler? Because you're only a few episodes away. It's a real Squid okay? Game uh, scenario. I'm just gonna t- <laughs> I'm gonna tell I'm gonna say what the question is. Okay. But I'm not gonna answer it. Okay. 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 The, the question is, what do you think happened to the Russian in? The Pine Barrens episode of The Sopranos, aka arguably the most famous Sopranos episode, uh, the episode that the cast calls their favorite. Which I've heard of the episode, yes. and I'm anticipating it, but I have not seen okay. it yet. So we'll, we'll revisit it in uh, okay. future rapid fire. And with that, we conclude our first In the Flesh podcast in a long time. It was fun. Thank you for watching. If you're watching or listening, we'll be back, hopefully back in the studio again going forward. That's the plan. We'll see what happens. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Hockey News Podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the Hockey News Magazine delivered right to your mailbox. 